Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. Hey all, this is the third and final installment of The Assassins. If you're coming to this episode first, I would recommend winding back a couple of episodes and work your way back up here. If you're returning, then welcome back, let's jump into it. I want to start this episode with a confession. When I say the Mongols brought our tale of the Persian assassins to an end, in one sense they absolutely did. After the Mongols established the Ilkhanate, the assassins ceased to be a powerful and shadowy force in the area. However, the cult of Hassan Isaba survived, just quietly living their lives in the background. When Western academics arrived in northern Persia in the 1810s, they found the cult still in existence, centuries on from their last killings. In 1818, a young man named Hassan Ali Shah, who claimed ancestry back to the Prophet Muhammad and his wife Fatima, was the sect's leader. The Shah of Iran had recently granted him the title, the Aga Khan. In 1838, rather unusually for assassins of this stage, he led a failed revolt against the Shah and had to flee to Bombay, India. His story is convoluted. He gets involved on the British side of the First Anglo-Afghan War, among other incidents. What is pertinent to this story, however, is while in India, the Aga Khan tried to tax the Indian Ismaili, who flat out refused to pay him a rupee. They acknowledged their religion had come from this organization, but they had long since separated from the Persian assassins. They owed him nothing. When this dispute came before British courts in the second half of the 19th century, it was a shock to the Western world in general. The assassins had survived the Mongol hordes and had spread so far. And speaking of spreading outside their boundaries, the first Ismaili missionaries crossed into Syria in Hassan Isaba's time. Their experience was quite different from the Persians. For one, they found both a wide range of older beliefs still in existence in the many isolated villages. This country was a potential gold mine for them for this reason. The first complication was the country was in the middle of a conflict with several armies of Turkish invaders. These Turks first came in from lands east of the Oxus River around 1064, and being very new recruits to Islam, held both very narrow and very ardent views on the religion. This marked them out as dangerous foes to the unorthodox Ismaili. By the mid-1090s, the earlier Seljuk rulers were fragmented. Their sultan, a man named Tatush I, was killed in battle in 1095, and two of his sons had formed rival states. The second complication was the European Crusaders. The reasons the Europeans invaded are slightly more complex than my following explanation. But the major impetus was an escalation in fighting between the Byzantine Empire the large, thriving empire in modern-day Turkey, which was once the eastern wing of the Roman Empire, and the Seljuks. Both Turks and Seljuks were recent converts to Islam, who arrived in the region from Transoxiania. In 1071, the Byzantines and Seljuks fought at the Battle of Manzikert. 
the Byzantines lost badly to the Seljuks. The far more agile Seljuk archers rode at them in waves, hitting then running till the Byzantine army wore down. One legend from this battle tells of a group at the centre of the battlefield, mostly comprised of the elite Varangian Guard. They were the last to fall. One bloodied, mud-caked man was captured and brought before Alp Arslan, the Seljuk leader. Turned out the man was Byzantine Emperor Romanos IV. Alp Arslan threw the Emperor to the ground, putting his boot on the man's neck. What would you do if I were brought to you as a prisoner? he asked. Romanus replied he might kill the warlord, or perhaps march him through the streets of Constantinople for his subjects to jeer at. Arslan replied his punishment would be considerably worse. He'd forgive the emperor and send him home. He of course ransomed the emperor back to the Byzantines. You get nothing for free. When Romanus was returned, he discovered just how right Arslan was. An angry junta in the court quickly deposed Romanus, blinded him, and sent him off to live the rest of his life in a monastery. His successor, one removed, Alexius Komnemnos, was spooked enough by the rapid Seljuk encroachment on their land. He wrote to the Pope to ask for help. In 1095, Pope Urban II kicked off the first of the Crusades to the Holy Land. By 1097, the soldiers of the First Crusade had beaten the Seljuks at Nicaea, then swept clean through the Levant, establishing four Christian city-states, Edessa, Antioch, Tripoli, and Jerusalem. While this led to utter disarray among various Turkic, Shia, and Sunni groups, a large number of Syrian locals gravitated towards the Ismaili, who they saw as their best hope against the invaders. Also quite different, the Ismaili were largely performing without a safety net until 1131. It took them close to half a century to capture a mountain fortress, so were more vulnerable to counterattack than their Persian counterparts. But oh, did they ever assassinate. Take for example the 1st of May 1103 killing of Janar al-Dala, the ruler of Homs. A group of assassins ambushed him while praying in the mosque. A massive brawl broke out in which several of the ruler's bodyguards and the assassins were all stabbed to death. Or the attack on the citadel at Athamia. At the time, the fortress was occupied by a warlord named Khalaf ibn Malayab. One day in 1106, six men showed up at the entrance with a horse, Frankish shield and armor. They claimed they had come across a crusader knight on their travels and murdered him. They were now there to pay tribute to the warlord to gift him these belongings. They were welcomed in. In the following days, they murdered the warlord and temporarily took over the citadel. As with many attempts to hold down a fortress in these early days, they were outnumbered and eventually lost the fortress. Another notable assassination. In 1113, the Persians sent the Emir of Mosul to Syria with an army. They were there to fight against the Crusaders. The assassins finished the Emir off with their usual efficiency. Several other murders and attempts to secure a castle continued. At one point, a ruler even knocking down old castles to stop them taking them. In 1124, the sect was successfully expelled from Aleppo in Syria. They continued on in the shadows. In 1126, they killed a governor of Mosul. 
There is a story from this particular murder that a gang of eight assassins carried out the deed. Seven were killed on the spot, and unusually, one escaped. Days later, that assassin returned to his home village to find his hometown was celebrating the kill, and him as a martyr. His ecstatic grandmother was suddenly ashen at his return. Sinking into a deep depression, she disowned the young man. In 1129, the assassins successfully knifed another vizier, this time in Damascus. But this time, a militia rose up, slaughtering thousands of Syrian Ismaili in retaliation. By 1131, however, they finally got a couple of toeholds by way of fortresses in the Harim Mountains. While the assassins were not in open conflict with the Crusaders, some Muslim writers even suggested the two forces were in allegiance with one another. They did profit from Crusaders being driven out of a handful of fortresses by the Turks. As soon as no one was looking, they swooped in. They spent the next two decades consolidating their power in the mountain regions. While one assassin leader did ally with a crusader, Raymond of Antioch, there were only two assassinations from this time. A revenge attack on a Muslim leader for the massacre of 1129, and in 1151, the murder of a crusader, Count Raymond of Tripoli. In 1162, Rashid al-Din, a man later known as the Old Man of the Mountain, arrived in Syria via Alamut Castle. Just a young man of around 30, he was an up-and-coming star in the organization. He was the son of a wealthy family from Basra who had trained in alchemy and had been radicalized into the sect. The Hassan, who briefly convinced the Persian Ismaili the end of the world was coming, so it's fine to pray facing away from Mecca, with a glass of wine and minstrels serenading you. Well, he was the man who sent him. Rashid was in charge when Hassan ordered the sect to renounce Islamic law. Though Syrian records are hazy, it does appear he fell in line with Persia on this. In these years, the ruler of Aleppo sent an army after the Ismaili, and they withstood the attack. It is from around this time that a legend arose of a garden of earthly delights behind their fortifications, where young men were brainwashed into martyrdom. Following this attack, Rashid put a lot of time and effort into making all their fortresses unbreakable, while building new castles throughout the mountains. Rashid al-Dim became such a well-loved and capable leader that assassins were actually sent from Alamut Castle to murder him for fear he would usurp their authority. In the meantime, much of the Islamic Near East was coalescing behind a Sunni Kurdish general who came to be known as Saladin. He would rise from general to sultan of a sprawling empire which took in parts of North Africa, Mesopotamia, Syria, Egypt, and Yemen. Of his many victories, he led an army of 40,000 Muslims against a crusader army of a similar size at the Battle of Hattin in 1187. The crusader army was exterminated to all but a handful of men, while Saladin's army lost but a handful of archers. This is to say the man was a respected leader and a more than formidable general. In a sense, it was inevitable he would come into conflict with the assassins. In 1181, Saladin wrote to the Caliph of Mosul, 
He accused the caliph of underhanded behavior and using assassin forces against the crusaders. His concern was not one iota for the crusaders, but the rest of Islam, as he feared the caliph was planning an attack on his own empire. This was probably in truth a pretense to attack Mosul and bring the city under his sway, but it also revealed a hidden animosity towards the cult. His animosity was not unfounded. In December 1174, while Saladin's army was besieging the city of Aleppo, a letter was sent from the city to the old man of the mountain. If they assassinated Saladin, the ruler of Aleppo would shower land and money down upon them. Soon after, a team of assassins breached Saladin's camp and may have gotten away with the murder, but for an emir who recognized the men. The assassins struck down the emir, getting into a fight where many people, including themselves, were stabbed to death. Saladin survived the attempt on his life. Assassins tried again on 22nd May 1176. In this case, a group of assassins, disguised as soldiers, got to the general, stabbing him several times. Saladin was wearing armor under his clothes and only received a handful of minor cuts. Several men were killed, however, while subduing the killers. These assaults unnerved the Sultan, however, who made it a point of never letting someone he did not personally know come within striking distance of him ever again. Saladin did lead an army against the assassins in 1176, but had to call off the siege due to an attack by Frankish crusaders elsewhere. After this point, for all his rhetoric, Saladin chose to tolerate the assassins. There is a story which might explain this sudden tolerance. The tale has it Saladin also sent a letter to the old man of the mountain, only to receive one in return. Saladin received the messenger, having him check for knives. The messenger then stated he was to give the message to Saladin alone. The Sultan waved away most of his entourage except for two well-trusted guards, stating, Give your message. I have been ordered to deliver it only in private, the messenger insisted. The Sultan doubled down, stating, If he wished, he should deliver the reply, otherwise just leave. I regard these men as my own sons, he stated, of his bodyguards. The messenger turned to the guards and asked, If I ordered you, in the name of my master, to kill this Sultan, what would you do? Both men drew their swords, replying in the affirmative. The messenger then left, alongside the two bodyguards. Of course, in the following years, assassinations of powerful rulers continued in Syria, especially the powers that be in Aleppo. Then there was the time they killed their crusader king. The Marquis Conrad of Montferrat, king of Jerusalem, mentioned in part one of this series. Two assassins disguised themselves as Christian monks, became friendly with the bishop, and from there the king. They just bided their time till the opportunity presented itself on 28th of April, 1192. Contrary to popular legend, it appears both assassins were captured alive, and under questioning broke, admitting they committed the murder on behalf of England's King Richard the Lionheart. He wanted his nephew and protege, Henry II of Champagne, on the throne. As it turned out, he got his way when Henry married Conrad's widow and took the position. Other Islamic historians have claimed at this stage Saladin was friendly with the assassins, and that he ordered the murder. 
Whatever the case, the assassination cleared Conrad, the most belligerent of the Crusaders, off the battlefield. This left an opening for Richard and Saladin to sign a peace treaty soon after. This treaty recognised the land of the assassins, henceforth not to be attacked by either side. And this was how the assassins of Syria achieved respectability, at least until the Mamluks disbanded them. There is one final tale I wish to tell, in this rather episodic tale of history and imagination. The Kipchaks were a tribe of nomadic steppe people, coming from somewhere close to the Mongols. In the 1220s they got on the bad side of the Mongols, then fled to Eastern Europe, hoping to find sanctuary. Some rulers, like King Bela IV of Hungary, did take in Kipchaks, and faced off against the Mongol hordes himself as a consequence. One can imagine how these defences played off against the near-unstoppable power of the Mongol army. One tribe, known as the Bali, fled to Bulgaria. The Mongols pursued, retrieving thousands of Kipchaks, then selling them through the Crimean slave markets. In that hall, a giant, broad-faced young man we would come to know as Baybars. Baybars, then around 24 years of age, passed to the household of a powerful Egyptian. In 1147, his master got on the wrong side of the Egyptian sultan, who had the master executed. He personally confiscated all his belongings, including his gigantic slave. In 1154, this largely steppe-born population, Mamluks by their terminology, gained freedom when given a small state. They then proceeded to overthrow the Egyptian sultan. Baybars then took on the name we know him by now, meaning Great Panther, and the leadership of that nation. Mamluks would still be in charge in the late 1790s, when Napoleon Bonaparte landed there. The Mamluks came into conflict with the assassins in the 1260s, after having taken control of Syria and done the near impossible. They defeated the Mongols in battle at Ain Jalut in September that year. The assassins accepted their authority and began paying a cash tribute to them. Baybars decided, however, they could not be allowed their independence. He saw them as a dangerous complication in his plan to unite the Near East and eject the Mongols and Crusaders entirely. In 1270, he deposed the assassin chief, Najm al-Din, putting in one of his own men in charge of the sect. Of course, the sect sent assassins to kill the sultan. In 1271, two men tried and failed and were arrested. Najm al-Din and his son, Shams al-Din, were arrested and taken to Cairo where the Sultan could keep a closer eye on them. The assassins, no longer independent, continued for some years in the service of Baybars and his successors. Several high-ranking crusaders were stabbed to death by unobtrusive men who had simply blended into their courtly surroundings. Till unexpectedly, clinically, they struck. By the 13th century, the assassinations ended, and the assassin sect faded into obscurity. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. 
visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. Love to see you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.